When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Faith Hedgepeth? So first I'll go through the background for Faith Hedgepeth. It's fairly brief. Then go through the timeline of the crime. This is more extensive. And then I'll offer my analysis. Faith Hedgepeth was born in 1992 in North Carolina. She was a member of a Native American tribe. Her father's name was Roland and her mother's was Connie. She had a sister who was 18 years older than her. Hedgepeth was a student at UNC Chapel Hill and worked part-time jobs, including at a Red Robin restaurant. She wanted to be a pediatrician. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. We go to September 6, 2012. At about 6 p.m., Hedgepeth was attending a rush event for a sorority. Afterwards, she went to the Davis Library on the UNC campus. Her friend Karina Rosario was with her. At about 7.30 p.m., they made their way to Rosario's apartment. Hedgepeth was living there temporarily until she could move into her own apartment later that month. After midnight, so now we're on September 7, the pair made their way to a nightclub on Rosemary Street called The Thrill. At the club, people under 21 were allowed in to dance. They were captured on surveillance video. They arrived there at about 12.40 a.m., At some point, Rosario's stomach became upset. They would leave the club for this reason at 2.06 a.m. and make their way back to Rosario's apartment. They did not arrive there until about 3 a.m., so it makes sense that they may have stopped at one or more places on the way. Rosario decided to go back out. She was picked up from the apartment by a male friend at 4.25 a.m. Rosario would later tell the police that she left the door of the apartment unlocked. Hedgepeth was in the apartment sleeping when Rosario left. Rosario returned to the apartment at about 11 a.m. A friend of hers was with her at that time. Upon entering, Rosario discovered Hedgepeth on the bed with blood under her head. She would call 911 at 11.01 a.m. and report what she found. She indicated there was blood everywhere. The dispatcher suggested that Rosario could give Hedgepeth aid, but Rosario said she did not want to touch her. Eventually, Rosario did touch her and reported that she felt cold. The dispatcher said, don't touch anything else. So probably thinking now that this has moved from a situation where somebody could be helped to just a crime scene. The police would find Hedgepeth's body face up, hanging off the bed, wearing only a black shirt, which was pulled over her head. The police collected semen from Hedgepeth's body, and they located an empty bottle of Bacardi peach rum that contained tissue fragments and DNA. They reasoned it was the murder weapon. The bottle was not broken. 
On the bed, the police found a torn-off piece of a fast-food bag from a place called Time Out. It had handwritten words on it that read, I am not stupid, blank, jealous. Just like the word blank, the actual word began with the letter B and had five letters. Many of the items in the room had blood on them, but the note did not. The cause of death was later determined to be blunt force trauma to the head. She also had cuts and bruises on her arms and legs and blood under her fingernails. So it did appear there was a struggle. Later, a voicemail message from Hedgepeth was turned over to the police from a friend of Hedgepeth's. Apparently, Hedgepeth had dialed this friend by accident on the night she was killed. The message has been analyzed by experts. The debate over the recording involves the time at which it was created. The timestamp indicates 1.23 a.m., so it was made when Hedgepeth was still at the nightclub. There are some theories that perhaps the time was recorded incorrectly, and therefore the recording may have captured the attack. But the police checked this out pretty thoroughly. The timestamp was correct. The recording is not useful. Now, with the recovered DNA, the police probably thought this case was very solvable, but they performed hundreds of DNA tests and did not get any matches. The police were particularly interested in finding out information about two of Rosario's former boyfriends. The first one is named Eric Jones. There were a few reasons he was considered a person of interest. Rosario and Jones had broken up, and Jones was trying to get back together with her. He used to live in Rosario's apartment until they broke up. He felt as though Hedgepeth was interfering with his efforts to get back with Rosario. He also allegedly threatened to kill Rosario and Hedgepeth if Rosario did not reunite with him. He allegedly broke into Rosario's apartment after she changed the locks. He moved into the same apartment complex with a relative, so he was nearby. Rosario had sought a domestic violence protective order in July of 2012, not long before Hedgepeth's murder. The day before the murder, Jones had sent a text to an acquaintance and sent a message to somebody on Twitter asking them to forgive him for what he was about to do. Three days after the homicide, Jones changed his Facebook cover photo and replaced it with this statement, Dear Lord, forgive me for all of my sins and the sins I may commit today. Protect me from the girls who don't deserve me and the ones who wish me dead today. So he was looking for advanced forgiveness or future forgiveness. I'm not sure it really works that way. The police would determine that Jones' DNA did not match the DNA found in the apartment. The other person the police were interested in was named Brandon Edwards. He had slept in Rosario's apartment on the night of September 5 and left at 11 a.m. on September 6. He also had contact with Rosario and Hedgepeth at the nightclub on Rosemary Street early on September 7. A text message was sent from Hedgepeth's phone to Edward's phone at 3.40 a.m. on September 7 asking her to come over and see Rosario. That exchange ended at 4.16 a.m. This is the last time that Hedgepeth's phone was used. Edwards was also excluded by the DNA, so his DNA did not match the DNA left in the apartment. There were a number of other people who had contact with Hedgepeth at the nightclub. Some of them have been identified, and they have been excluded using the DNA. Now moving to my analysis. The FBI assisted the Chapel Hill police with the investigation. The Behavioral Analysis Unit came up with fairly obvious conclusions about the suspect, which is often the case it's very difficult to make personality determinations simply from a crime scene. Here's what they thought about the killer. They said that the killer knew Hedgepeth. 
He may have lived close to her at one time. He may have talked to associates about her, and he may have had an unusual interest in the case. They didn't mention this, but from the note, it would appear that the killer does not believe he is stupid, and he has terrible handwriting, so there's that. The note, though, may not have anything to do with the homicide, so the killer may not have even written that note. The DNA was used to generate a profile, which has been released to the public. It's based on probabilities. They don't know the characteristics of the suspect with certainty, but they know there are high likelihoods of certain characteristics being present. The profile indicated the suspect's ancestry was likely either a mix of Native American and European or Latino. He probably had black hair and olive skin. Also, they think he had brown or hazel eyes and few freckles. So what could have happened in this case? Let's look at a few of the theories. Number one, we know that Hedgepeth had a few different casual relationships with male partners. It's reasonable to believe that the police have tracked down all those who could have been identified from communication, like social media. One would think that these individuals would have been thoroughly investigated, as it is more likely that they would be involved than individuals who did not have a sexual relationship with Hedgepeth. This theory says that there was an unidentified partner who stopped by to see Hedgepeth after Rosario left. This individual had sex with Hedgepeth, either consensually or non-consensually, and murdered her with a weapon of opportunity, the bottle of rum. So this was a heat-of-the-moment murder. This seems like a good theory. It would explain the DNA not matching anyone, but it's hard to believe that the police couldn't identify this person. How did Hedgepeth communicate with them? Perhaps he was uninvited, so he knew her and he just stopped by early in the morning. It also does not explain the note. So this theory is good, but it has a few areas that it just doesn't cover. Now moving to theory number two. Essentially, this theory says that a casual romantic partner was there that morning and contributed the DNA, but another man entered and killed Hedgepeth. The killer did not leave DNA. So under this theory, the DNA is actually causing confusion in the investigation. The mystery killer could have been a stranger or someone that Hedgepeth had a casual relationship with. The killer could very well have been one of the people that the police looked into. Now moving to the third theory. After Rosario left, a serial killer type individual took notice. This man had never been arrested before, or if he had, no DNA was collected. He walked up to the door and turned the doorknob, and to his surprise, the door was unlocked. He entered and committed homicide. I suppose one could argue that another theory would be that a casual partner left the DNA and the serial killer came in after that. But I'm not going to list this as a separate theory because that seems remarkably unlikely. The last theory, number four, has to do with Rosario, like she was involved in some way. There have been a few aspects of Rosario's behavior that are curious. I'll talk about a few of them here. Did she write the note or par the note? Many people believe the note was written by one or two females. Perhaps it was a low-tech communication system between the two women, like they were arguing. The origin of the bag was a fast food place called Time Out, which was very close to the nightclub. Could they have stopped there on their way back to the apartment? It could be that they wrote the note and it has nothing to do with the homicide. Maybe Rosario did not want to take responsibility for the note, if in fact she did not take responsibility, because she was afraid of looking guilty. Now moving to the next item of curiosity, 
Rosario left the door unlocked. Not long before this, Eric Jones had broken into the apartment. One would think that Rosario would be very alert to security concerns, so that seems a bit unusual. The next curious item, leaving the nightclub because of an upset stomach, but then going out later. It could have been that she was hungry and ate, perhaps at that time-out place. Some people have argued this point by looking at the word upset. Why not just say hungry? If somebody's hungry, they usually don't say that their stomach is upset. Using the word upset instead of the word hungry is like saying your car is broken because it's low on fuel. It's an unusual word choice, but I don't think it necessarily means anything in this case. It could have just been that she wanted to leave and she just said her stomach was upset, so she would have a reason to leave, like just making up an excuse. It wasn't necessarily a factual statement. The last item of curiosity is the 911 call. I don't find this particularly unusual considering the stress that she was under, but I can understand why some people look at this and think something may be off. She did seem fixated on establishing her alibi. She kept saying things like, I wasn't here, I just came home. I think this is actually somewhat normal. Nobody wants to be suspected of murder. I think from her point of view, it would be a priority to establish that she had nothing to do with the crime. Her initial unwillingness to touch the body is also understandable. If she were the perpetrator, one would think that she would have wanted to be told to touch the body, right? She'd want the dispatcher to say, go over and make contact with the body, because that would give her a justifiable excuse to contaminate the crime scene. It would explain why later the police might find her DNA, fingerprints, hair, or whatever she may have left during the crime. So not wanting to touch the body actually points toward innocence. Other than these curious items, I don't really see a compelling reason to believe Rosario was involved. She was 20 years old. I doubt she had a lot of homicidal experience. For her to have been responsible, we would have to believe that on her first murder, she was effective enough at staging the scene and avoiding having evidence on her that she was able to defeat the investigative efforts of the police and the FBI. In addition, she left no physical evidence implicating herself in a crime scene that was covered in blood spatter. Now, she could have had a conspirator, but that would only make it more difficult for her to cover her tracks. So that leaves more opportunity for somebody to say something or be connected to the crime scene in some way. So I don't think theory number four is terribly realistic. Stepping back and considering everything in this case, I think theory number one makes the most sense. There's an unidentified male partner out there somewhere who stopped by uninvited and committed the crime. With this theory, of course, the note is unrelated to the crime. The last item I want to cover here is the large amount of data generated in the investigation and how that can be problematic, how that can influence the course of the investigation. Hedgepath and Rosario led fast-paced lives, and they were socially active, which can make an investigation challenging. However, their activities were well-documented with social media and other technology. So even though there might have been a lot of people to talk to, like friends, classmates, and other acquaintances, there should have been a good record available to the police. One could argue that there's no such thing as too much data in an investigation, but I wonder if the quantity of data overwhelmed the police, especially in the beginning, leading to a poorly executed investigation with a lot of missed opportunities. We know, for instance, the police did not collect some of the video surveillance available outside of the nightclub. The surveillance was overwritten by another recording. 
because the police waited too long to visit the place that made the recording. So we see that sometimes the data can just be so plentiful that the police don't know what to do. They don't know what direction to take, and it just becomes a situation where they're going to miss something crucial. This is one of those cases that is frustrating because it's unsolved when it seems like it really should have been solved within a few days after its occurrence. There's a body, there's DNA, there was a struggle, you have that note, and again, you have the good record in terms of where Hedgepeth was at various times. Either way, there should still be hope someday that the party or parties responsible can be brought to justice. Perhaps the conclusion to this case is just one DNA test away. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Slaycation.